0: Hello guys, I'm Mossin. Welcome to this episode of Millionaire Muslim. Before we get into this episode, we just wanted to spend a few seconds telling you about Islamic Finance Guru or IFG for short. Mossin and I co-founded IFG in 2015 because we couldn't find content about personal finance and Islamic finance for Muslims like you and I. Nowadays, Alhamdulillah, we reach an audience of hundreds of thousands, and our goal is to keep providing great content to help you guys. So if you're looking for halal investments and Islamic mortgages or startup funding check us out at islamicfinanceguru.com and if you want to get in touch with us directly you can get me on mossin at islamicfinanceguru.com and you can get ibrahim on ibrahim at islamicfinanceguru.com enjoy the episode looking for a different approach to money meet gatehouse bank a sharia compliant uk bank built for the modern world we help home buyers to purchase or refinance their home provide buy-to-let funding for landlords and offer award-winning savings accounts. Wherever you're going, get there a different way. Get there with Gatehouse. To find out more, visit gatehousebank.com. Before we dive in, I'd just like to say a quick thank you to our sponsor, PensionBee. They have helped over 70,000 customers be pension confident by helping them transfer their all pensions together into one simple online plan. They also have a great Shure compliant pension option as well, which is why we personally really like them. And you can check out a review of their offering on the Shure side on our website. As-salamu and welcome to the IFG podcast. This is Ibrahim Khan, your host, the co-founder of Islamic Finance Guru. And with me, we have a really special guest, someone who virtually has come all the way over from America, Khuram Agha, who's the co-founder, or is it founder? Khurram? Founder. Founder of Agha's Invest, which is a wealth management, robo-advisory platform that is Sharia compliant and is based in the USA, but hopefully we'll be going global in the next few years as well. I'm really delighted to have you on, Khuram. It's an absolute pleasure to have you. as Ibrahim. It's my pleasure to be here. Thanks for inviting me. No, it's a pleasure. And Khuram, I think the first thing is when we normally have people on from fintechs, they're usually a bit younger. And then when you normally have people on from the larger kind of Islamic banks, they're usually a bit older. And here it's slightly different, isn't it? Where you're quite an experienced. I'm not saying you're old, that by any <laughs> way of the imagination, but I'm saying you're more experienced, right? And I think we can learn a lot from that. I'm actually quite interested to hear about all of those experiences and how that has felt using that experience in the startups ecosystem.
1: I like to say I'm wiser, not older. So yeah, if you do develop the experiences as you go through your technology career or whatnot. There's absolutely a value in being young and in taking initiative and being excited. And there's also value of all of our elders who've done a lot of good work in our industries. So yeah, old is just a number, but wise, wisdom, that's what we're talking about.
0: <laughs> Definitely. You've had a really interesting past. you studied at some of the top kind of schools. I think Wharton, you did a MBA from Wharton, right? And you studied at other schools as well. And then you had a great career at Microsoft on the engineering side of things which I guess if you're an engineer to work at Microsoft or Google or Amazon or Facebook, there's kind of like the top echelons of that profession. I'd love to hear about your early life. You know, how did you get into all of that stuff? And what were you thinking about with your career when you started?
1: I'm originally from Pakistan. So in 1997, I went to McGill University in Canada. It's in Montreal. I absolutely love the city. Don't love the cold. I can tell you stories about how cold it is but let's not revisit that part. (laughs) But I loved my time at McGill. I did actually computer engineering and electrical engineering over there. I probably took just a course in software somewhere along the way. I never wanted to do programming or computer software. And I ended up at Microsoft sort of by accident. They had a career fair there and I was dropping my resumes here and there. And I still remember, I thought I'd get calls from every single person I dropped my resume at, right? They'll be lining outside my door, but Microsoft's the only place that actually called me back. And they wanted to interview me for a software engineering role as an intern. This was right after my junior year. I took it because that was the only thing I had. I really didn't want to do software. I didn't know much programming, but I came to Redmond, Washington. This is in the grand summer of 2000. And I fell in love with the city. I fell in love with the profession, with the network, with just the way people did software. And right there and then the course of my life was charted. So I never really left actually. I went back to McGill to finish my degree, but I had a full-time job gig from Microsoft. This is, and it started on New Year's Eve in 2001, right after 9-11, actually. That's another interesting story about how I left Canada and came to U.S. right after 9-11. But before long, it was 17 years at Microsoft. And I wouldn't trade my experience for anything else. It was wonderful. The learning I had, the mentors I had, the networks I developed, the impact I had, starting from my team where I was an intern to actually running that team of 70 people a decade later, wonderful experiences. I did many different things at Microsoft, including my last job was actually managing capacity for Azure. So every single byte that enters or leaves our data centers, I had something to do with it. Some of my systems were running there and absolutely impactful, very meaningful, very high visibility impact, but lacking meaning for me. And that was really the thing that was bugging me was because I was waking up in the morning and doing something that was very important, but I wasn't Enabling hungry kids to go to bed with a full stomach. And I just didn't feel that meaning or the purpose in what I was doing. So I actually did an MBA from Wharton in 2016, just to try to explore what else could I do? Am I always going to be a software engineering director, just managing software teams? Or can I do more? And I realized in my first day of investment management class at Wharton that I'm paying 2% of my annual fees to these financial brokers and financial advisors. And all they're really doing is automating what I learned day one of my investment management class. So that day sitting in Wharton, San Francisco with some peers, I still remember, I still talk to, I was like, we have to develop a fintech startup, which automates this. And that's Agass. It just took five years to do, but the seed of it germinated all the way back there when I was at Wharton. So I knew I was gonna do it. I was ready for it. I knew the second half of my career was gonna be around FinTech, but specifically what FinTech? And I realized one day I was filing my taxes and this is April 14th, the dreaded Uncle Sam day in US. And I'm looking through my tax return and I noticed this one line, this is like a decade ago, bond income. And I was like, what's a bond income? I don't invest in bonds. I don't have any bonds. So why am I getting any bond income? So I started looking into it and bond is all riba. It's all interest. So I'm like, okay, I'm getting exposed to RIBA, to interest without even knowing about it. So what am I going to do? So then I itemized all my bonds, I went through my tax returns, and I started to develop this habit where every year I would just donate that bond income out. And then I was like, why is that? How many people know that this is happening? How many people want to do something about it? And even if they did, how do they know what to do? That's a loss. I don't want Muslims, us, my generation, we're all investors. We don't want to be at a disadvantage. Just because you want to live according to our beliefs, according to our values, Agaz is a way, so you don't have to do that. Or others that are in the market today, Zoya does great work, Wahid Investments, so on. So I just feel that Islamic fintech, that's not the problem. The problem is not Islamic values or finance values or the prohibitions of riba and all. It's that people like me haven't created the solutions for our customers yet. So that's where the journey is culminating into where
0: I am today. Amazing, okay. And look, we'll talk a lot more about Aghaaz as we go. But one thing that I wanted to like dig into because obviously you've lived the experience of being in the engineering team at Microsoft for near enough two decades, right? And I think that's actually an area that a lot of people could learn from, presumably. And my question to you is, how did you find that? from a perspective now as a startup founder, because with Microsoft, you're part of a huge machine, right? And you're working on a relatively narrow bit of it. But at the same time, you've got a large ecosystem and a team to help you deliver that. How does that learning, that experience, transfer over to life as a startup? And has that changed, do you think, the way that you make decisions as you go along?
1: I tell people that you can't really fail at Microsoft. There is such a strong support system. There's people around you, people above you, people in your teams that just won't let you fail. If you have a deliverable, you'll get it done. This way or that way, somebody will help you. If you have to present to someone, somebody will write your presentation slides. It's hard to fail. As a startup, when I started, the first aspect I felt was the loneliness part of it. I am accountable for A to Z of it. I have to do the documentation. I have to go set it up on AWS. I have to write my website content, deploy it. I have to talk to customers. And all of this aspect of ownership starts with just you being alone. And that was the first thing I realized that one decision could sidestep me, which was just not the case at an enterprise thing like that. But I'll tell you, the most important thing I learned at Microsoft, and I obviously hired a lot of people there, managed a lot of performance, strong performers, poor performers. And there were a couple of things that really stuck to me, which were common in all people who were good performers. And I think that translates very easily to what we're doing as a startup. I think the two necessary skills are not your programming languages or your technical expertise or whether you can design the most optimal algorithm. It's that, do you actually have passion for what you're doing? And you can tell. My most favorite interview question, actually, I still ask that is, what's your favorite technology? And that doesn't mean there's no right or wrong answer. I've had people tell me my favorite technology is lawnmower. Whatever it is, doesn't matter. It just demonstrates to me what you're passionate about. And that's the most important thing for me. And the second skill set that I learned to really identify in people were how willing they were to learn. So you marry these two things together that you're actually passionate about a problem and that you're really willing to learn to go the extra mile, you will be successful. And I'm seeing that in my startup journey, 100%. I am very blessed. We have made up a very strong team. And they're all here, not because I can pay them the market salary. We are a bootstrap startup with early stage funding. It's that they're passionate about what they're doing. They're passionate about values. They're passionate about environment, about women's rights, about Islamic values. And they're willing to learn and explore what it means to develop a new institution like Islamic FinTechs in the US. So, passion and learning, the motivation and the ability to learn quickly, those are the most important takeaways from my 17 years' career at, at Microsoft.
0: That's really, really fascinating. And I guess the next bit of the story that I think a lot of people will find useful is where you jumped. From Microsoft, presumably at a very cushy, well-paid job into the abyss of setting up a startup. What led you to making that decision? And also pragmatically, how did you handle that transition period?
1: Yeah, it's actually abyss is an interesting way to put it. And I recall my very first tax return that I filed before and after my corporate and my income level. (laughs) That was a sobering moment, let's just say that. But how you do it, so the number one reason startups fail is actually not because the product's bad or because there's no product market fit. You can work on those things. The number one reason startups fail is because you run out of cash or you run out of your runway. And even if you had everything going well for you, you just don't have any more runway, you have to quit and you have to do something else. That's the number one, or one of the top reasons why startups fail. So I actually told you that I sat on my startup idea for years, because I didn't want that to happen. I didn't want that at the first sign of adversity, I'll quit and go back to a very cushy, very high paying job at Facebook, Microsoft or Google, which are all options very easily. So I actually, after Microsoft I spent two years at Oracle also. I set myself up financially with my family structure, that I could do this for an extended period of time without feeling this urge of, OMG, I got to go back to work. So that's the number one thing I would advise any entrepreneur. Don't just jump into it without planning it. Think about it. If it takes another two years, there's always going to be ideas to implement. You can always be a startup founder and an entrepreneur. But if you want to be a successful one, you want to set yourself up first. And for that, take your time, prepare yourself, prepare your family, make sure your wife or spouse totally supports you. And then you jump headlong into it. And then that abyss doesn't scare you anymore because now I know that I have this much time. I set myself up like this so I can go this long and that's okay for my family. So that's what I learned myself first.
0: And really, like I guess, practically speaking, what are the kind of key areas that you focused on in that two-year transition period? Was it like, I don't know, making the house payments, kids' finances? What were the things that you focused on and how did you plan it out?
1: The answer will be different for everybody, right? Some people have a high income level that they need. Some people can live pretty frugally. I basically got rid of my debt. That's what I did. So I had a house payment. I made sure that my house was paid off. I have no debt other than the RIBA reasons. I just don't like to have any debt on me or any mortgage. My cars are paid off. My house is paid off. My credit card, if I do use it, is on a revolving monthly only. So I did all that so that there was no additional pressure on me. The number one addiction for people is a paycheck because they get used to a certain lifestyle and then they just can't move on from it. So that's what I did, personally, myself. I looked at my finances and made sure that my debt was minimized, if not eliminated altogether. And then I could carry on and do, do what I wanted to do.
0: Makes sense. The way I approached it, in a slightly different period of my life. I was 28 or 29 at the time. And, and living in London, as is the dynamics, as you said, it's you know different for each person. But in London, the big challenge is the big monthly outgoing is your rent which is anywhere between 1500 to two grand two and a half grand a month, which is a lot of money, right? And if you jump ship and you go full time on a startup salary, which is anywhere between like 25 and 45, is 60, 70 percent of your salary will be going on this. I don't think it's viable if you're actually renting and you're married to do this unless you get yourself onto some kind of Islamic mortgage, which is what I did. So I just saved up to get myself onto an Islamic mortgage. Because interestingly, when you get yourself onto an Islamic mortgage, the monthly payments, they go down to something like 1200 or so. So from a cash flow perspective, it's actually much better. And then once that was done, I literally, the month after, I went full-time. So yeah, I thought I'd kind of add a UK yeah. bit of flavor to that answer as well.
1: Yeah, it makes sense I to you know the Islamic mortgage part of it. That's a good insight.
0: Yeah. The other thing I wanted to ask you was... What were the first things that you did, maybe your advice to other people who are taking this leap, they're now ready, they've set themselves up. What were the first key areas that you focused on when it came to Avaz that you're like, okay, I need to do these like four things to get this off the ground?
1: Yeah, I so actually the first thing I did, which I highly recommend is that I actually joined an accelerator. And this was while I was still working full-time and it was a very rigorous accelerator. I had to work weekends and nights just to do the homework part of it. But I started off with Founders Institute in Seattle and it was a 14-week or something like program weekly pitches and weekly material to do. And one week we'd look at revenue, other week we'd look at marketing. So in like 14 weeks, you had everything that you would want to do for a startup's life. You touched on it. You didn't go deep into it, but you touched on it. That gave me a really good understanding of what running a startup would be like. So I was still working and I had given myself this flexibility that if this wasn't for me, I wouldn't leave my job. I would just continue as it is until the next opportunity. So I think one thing I'd say is join a support system, join a seed accelerator or an incubator, if that works for you and then see if you actually like the experience. And if you do, then you just take the plunge and move on from that point on forward. So that's number one. The number two part that I really thought about a lot was why? Why am I doing this? I could very comfortably live out my career very happily. Everybody would be whatever. But the why is very important because the why gets you going when you're having your doldrums or your low times, whatever it is, because they're there too. And for me, the why is something that's beyond me. I've done well in my career. I've had partner level, executive levels at Microsoft. But for me, it's important to do something that I can leave behind, something that outlasts me in my life. That's my motivation. I want to set up something that creates a system that survives and goes on its own. So the why is very important and your why should not be, I want to do, I don't know, this particular startup. It needs to be a bigger problem that you're trying to solve. So once you get the clarity about what your why is, then you should go into it. And if you're not motivated about your why, then you're going to have a hard time surviving when the lows and the roller coasters
0: happen to you. And how did you go about defining your why? It's an easy answer and probably a very difficult answer as well. Yeah, but you think about it, right? So somebody in the UK, I forget, did this very
1: good podcast about it like the generational impact of Islamic finance in UK and US, right? People came in the 1960s and 50s and they set up banks and mortgage companies. Obviously, UK is far ahead of US. There's not a single Islamic fintech or neo bank here, but they did a lot of work and they set up the banks and Islamic mortgages and whatnot. But I think it's time to carry that legacy forward. In the U.S. anyway, U.S. is number 13 on the gift index, the Global Islamic Finance Index. U.K. is number five. This is Salam Gateway's ratings. U.K. has done a plenty of good work there, but U.S. is just far behind. And my why is, why are people compromising their beliefs for making money, thinking that Islam doesn't allow them that? I actually know of someone, very pious person, first row of the prayer and everything, but that person just wanted to invest and people told him you can't invest because of haram this and haram that. Unfortunately, that guy eventually said, I am going to invest. So he left many other things that he shouldn't have left. So my why is that we feel that Islam doesn't encourage us being rich or investing or saving money for our goals, which is completely far from the truth. So the fact is we don't have the institutions or the solutions available. And that's my why. My why is to scale Islamic systems so that people know that this thing is available. And then they can choose to make the right choices without having to compromise their beliefs. And that's the larger picture of why I'm pushing for this.
0: Makes sense. I heard somewhere, if your why doesn't make you cry, then that's not your why. Something along those lines. <laughs> that's that's quite, quite a nice way of putting it. So uh, Khuram, that's, so you, now you've got your why. Once you were in the startup life, what were the big learning points that you found now that you're kind of, building Araz and trying to come up with a product. What can you share with our listeners on what you learned as you went?
1: The first learning I had, and I'm not saying I was wrong, but in retrospect, I shouldn't have done it like that. I built the solution for myself, knowing that I'm a typical prototypical Muslim customer in the U.S. And that's just not the case. Muslim customers are very diverse. Their demographics are very different from mine, their age group, income group, education group. I am not a typical Muslim customer. So the first quote unquote mistake I did was to try to build a solution for myself. And that's just not right. So you have to understand your customer very, very deeply. I remember I was talking to a mentor of mine and he's like, so who's your customer? And I thought I had a very good answer. Hey, my customer is this 25 year old person just started working at Amazon, makes this much money and is saving for her marriage. He's like, wonderful. What kind of car does she drive? I was like, well, what was her major in school? I was like, really? And he's like, you got to understand your customer depth at that level because then you'll know what motivates them, what drives them. So my number one learning was understand our customer. Don't assume. Test your hypothesis. Do interviews. Humble yourself. Be prepared to be wrong about your assumptions. And that was the number one learning for me. And multiple learnings along the way, as we went through our different phases of launching our product, I realized how important security is for Muslims. Their email address, sanctity, the privacy, the PII, identifiable information. And as you would know, we've had some snafus in the Muslim apps and other things lately as well. So you had to disproportionately optimize for security. That was the most important learning for me. You could go late, but not go wrong on security. You get only one shot of that, honestly. The other thing is trust. Like people wouldn't just take my word for it. I have Mufti Faraz as a Sharia scholar, but people still want to say, you know what, what methodology do you really use to tell me that Tesla stock is halal? They want to know more. It's not that they distrust us, but it's that they don't trust us. So trust was, it's hard to earn and harder to retain. So that's the number one learning or number two learning for me was work very, very hard to get customers trust and then work even harder to not lose that trust. So that was the second learning for me. And just to close out on the third learning, Muslim customers, they are hungry for engaging with the right applications and software solutions out there. But you have to have the right approach to engage them. Just the boring old, ways of how things have been done do not engage our younger customer segment. So you have to find creative ways of how to engage them and keep letting them coming back to your solutions. And we're doing that through multiple different scenarios we can talk about it some of the time.
0: Brilliant. Why don't we um, go a little bit deeper on this key point, which is, I think, one of the main reasons why lots of startups fail, which is that they're often building something that they would like to build. As opposed to something that solves a real problem, and you know it's really interesting that you said that when you talk to customers, what they really cared about was the security aspect and the trust aspect and the and that side of things. If you had just been building let's say for yourself, what would the app have looked like versus you know what the app looks like now, just to kind of give customer you know the listeners an example of you know how you took on that learning
1: yeah. That's a great question. So I hope to write a book one day about us and that's one of the chapters in there. So for me personally, what was really important was the underlying under the hood stuff that you don't get to see. I really worked hard on our security, on our our infrastructure, on our software reliability and resiliency, on our investment product. I really worked hard at that with our team because that was important. But what didn't result in a very good initial product was our UX, our user experience. And I realized very quickly that UX is not important for me. I mean, a pixel looks the same as another pixel to me, to be really honest with you. I'm very self-aware of my weaknesses. And number one is that I just don't have a good eye for UX. And our UX was horrible. I am proud to say that it was horrible, actually. Uh, Reid Hoffman said that if you're not embarrassed by your first product that you ship too late, well, I was embarrassed, let's just put it that way. But our UX was horrible because we just didn't know what people wanted. You know, it worked for me because all the underlying stuff under the hood stuff worked really optimally. The data was there, wonderful. But people just didn't know where to find things, didn't know where to click for things. So I, we, we've revamped our UX significantly after we launched. And that was the number one learning for me and went for the customer, not for you. And it starts with what you are telling them, how they are perceiving you, how you're telling them to to that, how you're, in, you're building trust and confidence with them. Those things don't come if you build it for yourself. So That was my major learning there.
0: Makes sense. And I guess I'd love to hear a bit more about what does Avaaz actually do? Who is your perfect customer and what's the, key offerings that solve the problems that you're trying to solve for them?
1: Yeah. The one insight I had, there's many ways to save for your money, save for your goals in a manner that's Sharia compliant, right? I mean, there's multiple solutions out there, but I thought that a person who is 25 years old, just starting to get a new job and make some money, she's not interested in a retirement plan. Maybe she will still put some money aside for a pension or a 401k or whatever it is, but she has goals. She has Get married, she has to buy a car, maybe go for an expensive hajj, buy a house, whatever it is. And we just didn't have good investment strategies for goals-based. So Agaz is a goals-based investment advisor. We optimize for your goals. Our job is not maximizing your returns, it is maximizing the confidence that you will hit your goals in time. So, what we do is, and to my knowledge, we are the number one, the first goals-based advisor in the US that provides a halal way to do it. Uh, obviously, others like Betterment and l do that for the larger customer segment. And we optimize for your goals. So we start off with, what are your goals? Let's work together. You want to go for Hajj in eight years? Great. You're going to have to save $50,000 for it. Well, here's some of our data science and machine learning models that tell you that you should probably put aside $256 every month to do that. And we completely automate this process. So touchlessly, you can set up your goal and then effectively forget about it. And then on the, we, on the back end, we make sure that your goal stays on track. If it gets off track, we can change your investment portfolio, make it a little bit more aggressive or vice versa, because we will make sure that you hit your goal. And if you actually finish your goal ahead of time, awesome. You can take a dividends early, distribute them to your other goals or whatnot. So the first thing is it's a very modern data science backed goals based advisor. The other differentiation that we thought about for our customers was the younger generation really cares about values. And values are obviously always Sharia compliant, but I have two daughters and women's rights are critical for me. I wanna make sure that they have equal rights to do what they want to do with their lives. And a company which treats women poorly or treats people of minorities poorly I just don't invest in them. What if that's the kind of investment you want to do? What about environment and climate change? So we are a values-based investment advisor on top of being a Sharia compliant. We can let you create bespoke portfolios that are truly reflective of your values. And for example, you can checkbox environment, women's rights against big oil, whatever, something like that. And our software spews out the actual portfolio for you, which is truly reflective of what you do. Fully Sharia compliant, fully values-based, and then we manage it end-to-end for you with our custodials and so on. So that's Aghaaz, That's what Aghaz does. And in addition to that, we provide a whole bunch of calculators and scenario builders and financial health scores and things like that, just to manage your entire financial life cycle.
0: Makes sense. And this goal-based approach, why did you decide to go down that route? Is that did your research show that that's what customers wanted and why is that better than, you know, other approaches to investing? I wouldn't say
1: better or not better. This is an apples and oranges conversation. Someone who wants just an income maximization strategy and that's all they want to do, that is completely legit, totally support that, that's fine. But if you wanted to do a better job managing your finances, segregating some of the envelopes that you stuff under your bed for this goal or that goal, that's where a goals-based strategy comes in. Is it better? it's different. It's not the same strategy as a a retirement plan or as an income maximization plan. So it's it's a different strategy altogether. Why I do it is because I feel our customers want different goals-based strategies than just a template canned approach for your model portfolio, which is what other people do. And if you look at the trends, many other uh, investment brokers like L-West for women, for example, they're going towards a goals-based strategy because of the same rationale. People have goals. People want to save for goals optimally, especially the younger generation that we have. And I can share some numbers with you that in our segments, the older, let's say beyond a certain age threshold, they don't create goals with us. The younger actually are creating multiple goals with us with their own recurring deposits and so on. So our average number of goals per user is slightly under two, which means everybody creates a goal effectively, but the older people don't and the younger people do so it's kind of like validating our hypothesis there.
0: Makes sense. I wanted to ask a little bit about the future and where you see the future of, you know, what are the the trends in Islamic fintech, for example, that excite you, perhaps in the USA specifically, but also globally over the next few years? My son is
1: 17. He's in a senior year of high school over here. And I think just like we have our physical lives and we go from our teens to our 20s and and older, we have our financial lives also. So he has a bank card, a debit card. He gets some pocket money from it or whatever job he does. He gets some paycheck from there. He pays his, he goes out when he hangs out with his friends, he pays his bills there. Tomorrow he's going to start college. He'll have rent to pay for, bills to pay then starting a job and you have some savings, then you start to invest them, then you start to have some long-term retirement plans, then you have your insurance policies, then you set up your estate planning and your will and whatnot. And eventually when you pass on, you just, the thing goes to your inheritors. Very quickly, this is the entire financial life cycle of a Muslim customer today. Unfortunately, all of these have Islamic solutions out there, but they're not implemented in a proper fintech manner. UK, for example, has multiple digital banks. US has zero. UK has multiple takaful-based insurance products. US has zero. So I actually want to create this umbrella, this organization, which creates solutions for all of these milestones in your life so that a customer signs up. I'm not saying sign up with Agha, signs up with a service, an institution, which sorts of grows with them as they grow towards savings and investments and retirements and insurance and life policies and so on. So that's really the vision of what I want to create, a setup, a system where it grows with you throughout your life cycle.
0: Brilliant. And one interesting question I always find is, uh, you know, moving away from the fintech conversation, what's your favorite book and why?
1: I love to talk about it. I'm actually a very prolific reader. I love to read about a lot of topics. I'll tell you what, I, what some of the books I'm reading these days are. I love everything about the aspects of Quran. I really do. So I am usually interested in the modern, uh, a little bit more in an English that I can understand. But just recently I finished this book by Imam Ghazali called The Jewels of Quran, the Jawahar Al-Quran. And that's a thousand years old. It was a recommendation by Sheikh Hamza Yusuf in, in US. He did a series on it in Ramadan. And it is a fascinating perspective on the Quran. There are six themes of the Quran and every single ayah can be mapped to one of these six themes and which themes are the jewels and which themes are the rubies and which themes are the actual other precious stones. This is a thousand year old perspective. And it was just fascinating for me to read how the essence of Allah becomes a certain jewel and so on. So that's one of my very favorite books that I I read recently. The other book that I really strongly recommend, it was actually Mufti Faraz's recommendation was The Psychology of Money. I really liked that book recently. Some of the habits of why people save the way they do, why not, why this, why do they do bad habits that you know are bad habits. Uh, very interesting book. I, heart, I strongly recommend every teenager, every growing person to read this book, The Psychology of Money. And also since I am in the financial business, the other book I really interestingly liked was, this was a recommendation from our other Sharia scholar, Umar Khan, is the millionaire, the millionaire next door. So what are some of the habits of people who over their lifespan live what they want to live by, but also save money and they're millionaires effectively. So that's a very interesting book uh, I read recently. If you were to ask me my all time favorite book that I can pick up anytime, I can read it whenever I'm feeling whatever, like open up a random page is uh, The Road to Mecca by Muhammad Asad. It's a great biography slash travelogue, monologue of life in many different Muslim countries hundred years ago. And it's just a fascinating look at culture, at perspective. I just love that book. There was one time I read the book, and I kid you not, after the last bit, I started from page one again. It was just so, so wonderful for me. And you probably see it behind my books here somewhere as well. I also like biographies, especially of the Prophet, so Martin Ling's book, biography, the earliest sources, is one of my favorite books also. So yeah, I'm, I can read anything. <laughs> uh, what's your favorite book, actually?
0: I mean, the the answer is the Quran, right? Um... So- the one I'm reading at the moment is called, what's it called? It is called, and nothing, keep quiet, is it? Or it's basically about about Ireland and the, the troubles in Ireland. And it's an Orwell prize-winning, Orwell political prize-winning book. Uh, he goes through the different dynamics between the British, the Republic of the IRA, the Unionists, who were the Protestants at the time. And, you know, if anyone's ever read about Ireland, there's so many different factions and, you know, competing interests. It's always mind-blowing and you don't really know what's going on. But because he's shown it through a story, you feel like you understand it a lot better about what's going on. So I found that really, really interesting. I can confirm that the British, wherever they've gone, usually have not left it <laughs> in, a, in a very good state. Yeah. Uh, as the Quran says, innal muluka وجعلوا أهلها يفعلون that the uh, the kings when they enter a land إن uh, they like destroy it and you know they make the ones who are powerful you know the lowly ones and such is the way of the kings so uh, you know sadly the British they fall exactly on that kind of definition but well, when uh, the
1: british came to to india indian subcontinent india the subcontinent had 25% of the known world's gdp and when the british left in 19 whatever 47 or later it was 4% of the world's gdp so <laughs> i'm not saying the british had anything to do with that drop in production but they might have actually
0: incredible khuram it's been an absolute pleasure having you you know i guess uh, the final question from my side uh, the, the book's name, I've just actually found it. It's called Say Nothing. Uh, say nothing. Which is by Pat- Patrick Radden Keefe. Uh, so you can check that out. But Purim, I guess the final question for you is, what does the future hold for you in the next couple of years? Do you think? Let's say we check in with you in two years time. What would you have liked to, in an ideal world, have achieved in that two year period? You know, the cop-out answer, the easy answer
1: would be that we have X thousand customers, this many millions on assets managed, all that. And that's all well and good, having raised whatever million dollar, multiple millions of dollars in fundraising, whatnot. But if you really ask me what I would like to have, is that I would really want that because of efforts that we are making and others are making and yourself, IFG, very, very inspiring. I respect a lot of what you're doing it's a small world small community that because of efforts of all of us islamic finance gets more adopted gets more accepted that we have multiple new entrepreneurs budding new solutions coming up with the appropriate support system that's what i really want in a couple of years five years 10 years i hope to one day be a major investor vc whatever type for new islamic fintech related startups so i really want to create this ecosystem, this industry where it just flourishes. That really is the larger goal for me for the future. And for Agha specifically, I, we, we are expanding. I just had a call before your call with somebody who wants to do a partnership for the Middle East region. And uh, we're working on that. There's somebody that I'm very excited about in the UK market who wants to work with us and create joint partnerships in, in UK. And vice versa, there's some UK companies who want to come up to the US and partner with us. I am actually not a a very red ocean strategy person where everybody has to die for me to succeed. No, it's actually a blue ocean strategy. It's a collaborative strategy. Let's all work together and let's benefit each other in win-win situations. That's what I really want to create over the next two years. And hopefully, you know, I really want us to be known, my company, the people who have invested with us and our customers and our early employees, that they be appropriately compensated and get the recognition that they have had for really hard work and taking the risks that they've had. That's all. The journey is important, not the end, actually.
0: Absolutely, Khuram, It's been an absolute pleasure, and uh, you know, I invite everyone to check out Agaz Invest. What's the address, Khuram? and uh, what's the best way they can get in touch with you if they have any questions or you know want to connect with you on social media or something?
1: So Agaz. So my name is Khuram Agaz. So people are like, so Agaz is your name. So just to clarify that in Urdu, Agaz means the start, the beginning. So Agaz Investments is because you're starting something, your journey, your financial life. So aghazinvest.com, A-G-H-A-Z, invest.com. That's our website. We're only available in the U.S. for now, but hopefully before the end of this year, if I could cross my fingers, I would. It'll be available in UK and Canada also. We're working on that. But check us out on, if you're in the U.S., certainly look at Apple App, Apple App Store and Google Play and download it. We have our email addresses. Check me out on LinkedIn or connect with me on my email address or send us a general query from our website happy to engage with our customers. I actually have every day that I dedicate time to just talking to our customers. No agenda, just engaging with them. If nobody asks me something, I create questions and just answer them with them. That's important for me. So it's not bothering. I actually look forward to engaging with a potential customer. So, and I want to thank you, Ibrahim. You're an inspiration for us, for many of us who use your services a lot, actually. You don't know that, but we do. So thank you for all that you do. And I actually wish you the best of success. And I wish that you become 100x what you guys are today. And that just benefits all of us. So uh, my prayers for you and my best wishes for your success. as well.
0: No, JazakAllah Khair Khuram. Uh, and, uh, you know, hopefully we, we can be somewhere near as good as you, you know, hopefully you, you think we are, uh, inshallah. And may Allah accept from all of us. Um, JazakAllah Khair everyone for tuning in. And, you know, once again, many thanks to you Khuram for making the time. Until next time. As-salamu alaykum wa If you got this far, you must have enjoyed the podcast, which means you'll definitely love our other episodes and other content we produce as well, inshallah. Be sure to check out the website, islamicfinanceguru.com, as well as our YouTube channel and social media. Until next time, assalamualaikum.